Let's hear God's word. Second Samuel chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains, he was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 19, 2 Samuel 23. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we beseech you to open the eyes of our hearts, so that we might see truly, faithfully reflected what it is that the Holy Spirit would have us learn from this passage at this time. We ask that more than just understanding the story, more than just understanding why this is here in your word, that in addition to that, we would also appreciate how It points us to Christ, that it would not just leave us informed, but it would leave us also inspired, stirred up to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to see him as the one who is worthy of all that we can give and more. In his name we pray. 
Amen. You may wonder why, if we're going to focus on just verses 13 through 17, we read a little bit more widely. Well, there is a reason for that, just as there is a reason for the ordering of these things. If you know where we are in 2 Samuel, you realize that the book is about to end. There's only one more chapter. And it has brought us basically to the end of David's reign. David's actual death, the handing over of the kingdom to Solomon instead of David, that's going to be told in 1 Kings, in the opening chapters there. But at this point, we've been told most of what we need to know about King David and his reign. And so chapter 23 is sort of a retrospective. It gives us David's last words, his summary statement as king. And it is in that capacity that he says these things because he identifies himself as the anointed, the Messiah of the God of Jacob in chapter 23 and verse 1. Now, joined to David's summary of what has happened over the course of his reign, you then have a retrospective look where you're told about David's mighty men, about heroes who were joined with David. Part of the importance of that is the very simple lesson. Yes, David accomplished great things, but David didn't accomplish them all by himself. He had noble and heroic Helpers. He had people of great courage and high character who voluntarily joined him and who participated with him. Now, the men who are mentioned here are particularly mentioned in the context of conflict and war. Well, if you remember anything about David's life, you know there was a lot of that. There were many battles that took place. And what's particularly highlighted in this chapter are the battles that took place against the Philistines. You remember when David is introduced to Israel, it's in the context of defying Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. The Philistines were a thorn in the side of Israel for a very long time. And while Saul fought against them, Saul was not successful in bringing an end to the wars against them. That lot fell to David and to his heroes. Now, the particular portion that we're looking at today finds the Philistines encamped in the Valley of Rephaim. Now, sometimes that's translated as the Valley of the Giants because Rephaim was the name that some of the peoples of Canaan used for giants. Others would call them Anakim. Others would call them something else. But the ones who called them Rephaim seem to have prevailed a little bit more in terms of the language. So the Valley of Rephaim is the Valley of the Giants. And they've garrisoned Bethlehem. So David is found in the cave of Adullam. And comparing one thing with another, it seems to me that the best guess as to when this incident took place was shortly after the death of Saul when David had been crowned king over all Israel. The Philistines heard that he had been crowned king over all Israel, and they mustered their forces, according to 2 Samuel chapter 5. So I would suspect that this is probably the occasion there, still early in David's kingship. And he goes down to face the Philistines, but of course he takes personal refuge in the cave of Adullam. There's no point in giving some hotshot slinger or archer too easy a victory, right? 
And while he's there, he remembers the well of Bethlehem. Well, you remember David grew up in Bethlehem. No doubt he'd had many a drink of water from that well. And of course, water tastes different in different places. I have to say, the flavor of the water in Bakersfield does not draw me to long for it. Now, if you go to Kingsburg, they have really good water in Kingsburg for some reason, but in Bakersfield, it's just not that great. Well, the water from Bethlehem, whether it was objectively great or whether David just liked it because that was what he was used to and grew up with, he would have liked to have a drink of that water, but he couldn't. He couldn't because the Philistines were in the way. And not meaning anything by it, David said, oh, I wish somebody would give me a drink of that water. Of course, if you would have pinned David down and interrogated him about it, he would have said, I wish the Philistines were defeated and were gone, and then I could go to the well and have my drink of water. It wouldn't be a problem. I wish Bethlehem weren't occupied. Now, before we go any further, just stop for a moment to think about this. How serious is this Philistine invasion? Well, from our point of view, We already know David wins. David always wins, or almost always. So we're not worried about it. But from the standpoint of people who were living through this at the time, they don't know the end of the story. Here's their king's hometown, their newly anointed king's hometown, and it's been taken over by the enemy. The king can't even get to it. That's a humiliation. That's a threat. That's a shock to the system. Your king's hometown is now under guard by foreigners, by hostile foreigners. So this was a serious situation for the people who were living through it at the time. Bethlehem was occupied. Now, where it comes up in 2 Samuel, it comes up in a context where we've been told a couple of times that the Lord gave great victory with the man who apparently has two names, Joseph Bashabeth, but also Adino the Esnite. There was, he, he was chief among them because he had killed 800 men at one time. Then there was another one who defied the Philistines until his hand stuck to his sword. He fought so long, he fought so hard, he couldn't let go. And what does it say about that occasion? Well, if you look at verse 10, towards the end of the verse, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then if you look down at verse 12, where we're now talking about Shammah, the son of Agi, he stationed himself in the middle of a field full of lentils, defended it, killed the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. In this recital of the exploits of David's mighty men, the author of 2 Samuel is still carefully highlighting to us, yes, David was a man of God. Yes, he was surrounded by great heroes. But the victory was from the Lord. The Lord was involved in these battles. Yes, they had spears and bows and arrows and swords, But it was the Lord's conflict against the enemies of his people. Well then, the Lord's territory has been occupied as well. When it's not just David's hometown, it's the land of the Lord that is under siege and under threat. 
Now, just a word of application before we move on from this in sort of a general way. You know, the Bible contains stories of courage and heroism because this is also something that we need. One of the things that Christian kids need to hear about is stories of bravery. It can be about knights and dragons and princesses. That's fine. It can be history. That's fine, too. But why do we tell this kind of story? Why is this kind of story in Scripture? Why is it generally popular? Well, not all good things are popular, of course, and not all popular things are good. But kids love this kind of story, a man who fights till he can't let go of his sword. And not just kids, adults too. But why do we like that kind of story? Well, it shows us what can be done with exceptional courage. It shows us what can be done when somebody will not give up and will not let go. Well, that is useful as inspiration, as an example to follow. That is useful for character formation, for teaching our children how to be brave and how to be persevering and how to endure. Now, in one sense, Stories of war, stories of conflict, stories of adventure are an easy place to see that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with kids hearing those stories. There's nothing wrong with kids hearing these stories from 2 Samuel chapter 23, right? But if you want to help them also to understand that within the church, within our lives as Christians... We don't have as many of these stories about swords and spears, but there are nonetheless exciting stories of great courage in the face of danger. Well, you can go with missionary biographies. You can go with many of the annals of history where people have fought the Lord's battles, not with fleshly weapons, but with spiritual weapons. But they've fought the Lord's battles all the same. Many of you by now have wound up with some of Simonetta Carr's biographies of figures in church history. Read the one about Athanasius if you want to read about somebody who had an exciting life. Read the one about Patrick if you want to read about somebody who exhibited great courage in the face of danger. But those things are good for our kids. It's good for them to be inspired to dare great things. For God, It's good for them to realize that there is still a place for courage and persistence, for facing danger, not recklessly, but believingly, when God has called us to it. Once in a while, there will be a situation where there is danger in a military sense, where there's actual armed conflict. But even when that's not the lot that falls to us, there's still room for this high-hearted courage. And wherever that takes place, when we're engaged in it, we should acknowledge that the victory is the Lord's. Well, moving on then to what happened after David expressed that three of his top 30 mighty men said, okay, David wants a drink from the well of Bethlehem. Let's go get it for him. Now, whether they snuck through the lines subtly at great danger and came back without conflict, whether they made a quick charge and a just as quick retreat, being careful not to spill a drop of water, or whether they actually had to fight their way to the well and back. We don't know. 
The text doesn't say. It just says they went there, they got the water, and they came back bringing the water to David. Now, what does that tell you about these men? Well, it tells you they loved David, doesn't it? They were loyal to David. They would do anything for David. They exhibited this extravagance in serving David. They didn't count their lives dear to themselves. If they could get David some water from Bethlehem, well then, it didn't matter that the whole Philistine army was in between. Given the outcome, I'm not sure that we should value their strategic planning. I'm not sure that we should commend their action. But boy, the attitude behind it is neat to see. Imagine that kind of commitment. Imagine that kind of courage. David wants water from... Fine, we'll go get it for him. I don't know if it would be quite appropriate to call them daredevils. But they were not scared of the Philistines. They went and did it anyway. And they got away with it, so to speak. They made it back and forth. Those who are very bold and very daring are always surprising the more timid among us with how much they can do, with what they can achieve. And this is where it's important that we read the beginning of this. You remember David identifies, is identified at the beginning of this chapter in his last words as the anointed, the Messiah of the Lord. Well, for David, for God's anointed, these men didn't care about the danger. These men didn't pay attention to the risk. They would do anything for him. Well, that is most definitely the attitude we should have for our Lord Jesus. He is the true anointed one. David was a type. David was a shadow. But Jesus is the reality. What would you hold back from him? At what point will you say to the Lord Jesus, you know what? No, that's enough. You're asking for too much. At what point do you say that? Hopefully there is no such point because he is worth your best, your most devoted service. He wants you to run some danger, go for it. He wants you to endure some hardship, bear up under it. He wants you to give more than you have, step out in faith and do it because he is worth it. The attitude these brave soldiers had towards David is the attitude we should have towards Christ. And we should not worry about danger. We should not worry about the cost. You remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, verse 35. Whoever will save his life, whoever wants to, whoever, that's the plan, is to come out of this alive, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There is no safety for you in ultimate, in eternal, in spiritual terms, there is no safety for you except to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ, to have the kind of devotion to Christ that these three men showed towards David, their king. Now, if David was worth running the risk of the Philistine lines, there's only three of them, you remember. I mean, what are they going to do if 10 Philistines come, 10 Philistines come, or 20, or 50 What are they going to do? They went for it. Well, we are supposed to count the cost. 
We are supposed to come to Jesus intelligently, but when we truly stack up who he is versus what the cost to us may be, you have to find that he's worth more than that. Paul said that. He said, for the sake of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish, refuse, nothing compared, nothing competed with Christ. Now, we understand in terms of David, it's it would be possible to have an extravagant allegiance. It would be possible to say, I'm with David, right or wrong. Well, you can't say that about Jesus because Jesus is always right. You can't say, I'm with Jesus, right or wrong. You have to leave off the or wrong part because that situation never applies. So with David, it would be proper to have a limitation on your loyalty to say, well, I'll follow David into danger and into death, but I won't follow him into wrongdoing. But with Jesus, you don't need to make that limitation because he's never going to lead you into wrongdoing. So there is no limit. There is no boundary. There is no time when we can say to Jesus, that's too much. You can't ask that. No, I won't do that. You've got to give me something in return. He gives you himself in return. What more could you ask if you were being sane? Well, what was David's reaction to it? Well, it is a reaction that shows, in a sense, why his soldiers loved him so devotedly. They had many reasons for it. They had the reason that he led the way in battle. He was the one who had defeated Goliath and done other things. They had the reason that he shared their hardships. He was not sending them out on campaign while he goofed off at home. They had the reason that he was kind and thoughtful, that he considered those who were weak and divided the spoil with those who were not able to make it to the battle, as well as with those who had. I mean, they had a lot of reasons to love David. But here, they had shown how they valued him. They would do anything for him. Well, he showed how he valued them when he poured out the water before the Lord. The word for poured out there is often used in the Bible for pouring out a drink offering. When you brought offerings, there were situations where you were supposed to pour some wine either on them or to the side of them or on the ground in front of them, something along those lines. And although this was water and not wine, David poured it out. Why? In one sense, you might think, well, what a slap in the face. They went to all that danger and peril and brought this back for you, and you don't even appreciate it. You dump it on the ground. But he's not dumping it on the ground. He's pouring it out before the Lord. And what he's saying with that is they got this water at the risk of their lives. But their lives don't belong to me. Their lives belong to God. So he pours it out before the Lord. With every type of Christ, you always have to remember two elements. There's something where the type is like Christ, but there's also something, some area where the type falls short, where the type is not the reality. Well, David here distinguishes what was due to God alone, that absolute allegiance, that recognition, our lives are God's. That couldn't be true of David, who was merely a type of Christ. But it is true of Jesus himself, the ultimate reality. And so David does a couple of things here. One is he shows how he valued the lives of those men. He had had a strong desire to drink the water of Bethlehem, but not at this cost. 
there are some things that are not worth it. And that's a valuable lesson in self-control for all of us. However much we may desire something, there can be a price too high to pay for it unless what we're desiring is to follow the Lord, to let Christ lead us wherever we may go. There's a practical lesson about recklessness. There are some risks that are not worth it. We're not to presumptuously run into danger. That's not trust. That's tempting God. But if God's calling on our lives, if our responsibilities involve us in facing great danger, go for it. Go for it with a good conscience. Don't let risk deter you when it's the right thing to do. Now, if you're wondering, is this right, is this not right? Well, then you can do a risk assessment and see how that factors in. But if it's the right thing to do, risk can be ignored, can be neglected, like these men did. So David showed how he valued the life of these men. David showed how he understood that although he was God's anointed, he was not God and had no right to claim all of this from these men. And in that way, he showed us that we ought to value human life over other things. Now, that might seem like a very simple thing to say, but look at the world around us. Look at the society we live in. Can we truly say that in this 21st century world, it is clear by and large to the general population that human life is more valuable than other things. Uh, if, if we're being honest, we have to admit that this is a very basic lesson, but it's a very basic lesson that a lot of people have not learned. Well, it starts here. We need to learn it. We need to be clear on that. Human life is more valuable than almost anything else. Obviously, God is more valuable still. God is not normally served by a lot of death and a lot of human suffering. But God is more valuable than human life. So we learn that then with regard to ourselves. It's okay to throw your life away, quote unquote, for Christ. You can't throw your life away for Christ. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake in the Gospels will save it. You can try to lose your life for Christ, but he won't let you. You will get it back. You will get more back besides. But that is worth it. We should value all human life, including our own, to the point where we don't run into danger unnecessarily. And we should recognize that all of us belong to God. Not to ourselves, not to one another, not to somebody else. Whose are you? You are the Lord's. These were David's mighty men. They were loyal to him. But to whom did they belong? Well, the water that was procured at the risk of their blood was poured out before the Lord. David knew that they belonged to the Lord. Well, in this also you see something of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been calling on us all to be happy to throw our lives away, quote-unquote, in terms of this world for Christ. But what did Christ do? He actually did throw his life away, so to speak, for you. 
because he came down from heaven. He was incarnate. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And then he suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried for our salvation. David would not drink the blood of these men, the water that was procured at the risk of their blood. But the Lord Jesus invites us to drink his blood and to have eternal life. He did pour out his life for the death to us. Well, from that point of view, belonging to such a savior, to such an anointed one as that, how do we say, nope, you can't ask me for that. That's too much. That's too much risk. That's too much danger. That's too much hardship. That's too much suffering. How do you say to Jesus, you're asking too much in the light of what Jesus has already done for you? Amen.